Well, join me in John 17. John 17, turning our attention now to the preaching of God's word, continuing to worship. We have just sung of turning our eyes upon Jesus. That's what we do. We turn our eyes upon Jesus who is praying in this chapter, John chapter 17. And we find ourselves in the second section of this prayer. It's the longest section of the chapter. The first section is what we looked at for the last two weeks where Jesus prayed for himself where he consecrated himself to the cross and offered his sacrifice to his father. We saw that in verse one where his prayer was, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Give me the exaltation to exhaust your wrath against sin. Allow me to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of a substitutionary savior, that exaltation. Allow me the honor of crushing the serpent through my death. Why? Because of the end of verse one, that the son may glorify the father so that the father's holiness would be displayed so that the majesty of the Father's saving grace would be seen and experienced by all who come to Christ in saving faith. It is a profound prayer, as we have seen. It's a prayer that shows the heart of Christ, his submission to his Father's will. It shows his saving love for his people, his love for his Father's glory. It brings us to verses 6 through 19. Again, that second section where Jesus turns his attention away from himself now to his apostles. And he specifically prays for them. Let's read the text together, starting in verse 9. Starting in verse 6, rather. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, 
These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And you can stop there. This is perfect intercession from a perfect savior. Remember the scene, Jesus is about to cross the Kidron Valley and enter the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be betrayed. But more than that, his apostles will fail him. They will flee in fear for their lives. Now up to this point, the apostles have certainly talked a good game. Remember Peter's commitment back in chapter 13. Jesus predicts his death, and Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. You say, oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. Well, Mark says that all of them were saying the same thing. They're going to die with Jesus. But in just a few hours from this point, probably less, their confidence will crumble. The pressure of the moment will become too much for them. Mark 14 says, and they fled for their lives. And so Jesus knows that this failure is coming. He's predicted it in detail. He's warned them that that it is going to happen. And that is why Jesus at this point brings these men before his father In prayer, these men do not realize their own weakness. These men do not understand the power of evil that is approaching. These men do not appreciate how desperate they are for the prayers Jesus is about to offer on their behalf. That is why Jesus spends more than half of this final prayer, praying specifically for these apostles. Now, by way of application, for us understand Jesus's intercession for his people that we see here, see a glimpse into it. His intercession is not limited to his earthly life. Now, the prayers we see Christ pray for his apostles here are the same prayers He continues to pray for us today. And today, as he prays these prayers, he's not preparing to enter Gethsemane, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We can trust the prayer life of Christ. It's the promise we are given in Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. The question is, how does he save us? And it is true, he saves us through his cross. 
But that's not the focus here. The focus now is his resurrection. He's able to save us since he always lives. That's the resurrected Jesus. And what is he doing? He always lives to make intercession, to offer prayers to his Father for them, for us. This is one of the securities we have as a believer. We have a Savior who not only lived the perfect life God demands. We saw that last week. And not only died the substitutionary death for sin that God accepts, we also have a living Savior who is right now offering perfect intercession for his people. And verses 6 through 19 gives us a glimpse into how Jesus prays for us, what the requests he makes of his Father on our behalf. Now, it is true, the requests we see here are specific for his apostles. That is true. That's the scenario. But notice verse 20, what Jesus adds. Here's the application now. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. So what Jesus prays for his apostles is not limited to his apostles. It goes beyond them. But for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us. So what we see and hear in this prayer is the imminent heart of transcendent God and the compassionate care of our great high priest that he has for his people. And it's amazing, even though his own crisis mounts, his own crisis is about to come crashing down on him in a matter of moments, he still prays for us. And again, the application, if he can pray for us in his time of humiliation, oh, we can rest assured that he can pray for us in his time of glorification as he sits at the Father's right hand. It took us two weeks to get through first five verses. It's gonna take us a little bit to get through six through 19. So here's what I'm gonna do. Let's have an overview of this section here, an overview this morning We'll get a lay of the land, and then for the next few weeks after, we will delve into the details. But what, what, what I want you to see, the overview, is four overall requests, four overall requests that Jesus offers for his apostles, again, by extension for us as well. Four overall requests as the perfect Savior makes perfect intercession for his people. Let's begin with prayer number one. Prayer number one. Christ prays for the preservation of his people. Christ prays for the preservation of his people. We've read the Gospels. We know what's in store for Jesus' apostles. But they don't know this. Jesus put it this way earlier in the night. He looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon. And this would certainly apply to all the apostles, not just Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He wants to sever the head of grain from the stalk. He wants to sever you from your faith. 
So Satan himself, this is the serpent that threw the world into sin, the one who indwelt one of the apostles to do the unthinkable in a matter of moments. Back in chapter 14, Jesus called him the ruler of the world. Ephesians 6, he's the leader of the demonic realm of rulers and powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Jesus' message is, Peter, he's coming for you. He wants to destroy your faith. What hope does Jesus give Peter? What hope? And it's certainly not have no fear because you're strong enough in and of yourself. Now the hope Jesus gives Peter that his faith will not utterly fail and that Satan will not decisively win. The hope is this, continuing that Luke passage, I have prayed for you. That's our hope. I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Fail in the sense of total abandonment. Fail like Judas's faith failed. I've prayed for you and you, when once you have turned again, because Jesus prays for Peter, Peter will turn to Christ in repentance. And even more, he will strengthen his brothers. Because Jesus prays for Peter, Peter will be recommissioned back into the ministry. Here's why Peter and every believer, for that matter, perseveres in the faith. Here's why. It is because Jesus prays that our faith will not utterly fail. Why did Peter not go the way of Judas? Why did Peter weep in repentance after he heard the rooster crow? It is because Jesus prayed for Peter's perseverance and preservation. It's because he prayed for his coming repentance that he would turn. Well, this is exactly what we see in John 17. Notice verse 11. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them, guard them, protect them in your name. Keep them in your gospel, your truth. Do not let them fall away from the faith. It's repeated in verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them, shield them, shelter them from who? From the evil one, the one who wants to destroy their faith. And oh, how much we need to take Jesus' prayer to heart here how much we need to realize the power of our enemy and the danger we are in as believers. You hear some gospel presentations and it sounds like the Christian life is a tea party. The Christian life is a battle. It's a war against the God of this world who wants nothing more than to destroy your Faith. He is described as our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter wrote that. 
No doubt Peter had this night of failure in mind when he wrote that. Peter did not realize how weak he was. We do not realize how weak we are. Listen now, Paul describes the Christian life. Listen to the language he uses. It's all battlefield language. 2 Corinthians 10. We do not war according to the flesh. We're in a spiritual battle for the souls of men. We do not war according to the flesh, which is why the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In battlefield language. The gospel must destroy fortresses. These are philosophies. It's an anti-God mind and thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's our life. This is why Paul describes the Christian as a soldier of Christ Jesus. Used to sing that song when I was eight, Onward Christian Soldiers. And it was like the children's song. You know, every children plays with the army figures. Onward Christian Soldiers. Listen, that still applies today. We are soldiers of Christ. We're in a battle. That's why Paul calls us to put on the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of who? Of the devil. The battle we are involved in is a battle with the prince of darkness. And yet rather than these battlefield images paralyzing us in fear or causing us to retreat in silence, Jesus assures his apostles and us that our faith will endure. Our faith as true believers will endure. We will persevere even in this hostile world ruled by Satan himself. Connect this back to chapter 15. The world hates you. Stand firm for the gospel. Spirit will testify through you. You will persevere. But again, the, answer, the question is why? Answer, because Christ has brought our names before his Father. Amen. And he has asked his Holy Father to keep our faith, to secure us forever. We persevere because we have a Savior who always lives to make intercession for us. Again, we will look at that in more detail. That's just an overview. That's the first prayer that Christ offers. He prays for the preservation of his people. Prayer number two. Christ prays for the unity of his people. Christ prays for the unity of his people. You cannot read Christ's prayer and miss how much God cherishes unity and despises factions amongst his church. This is why there are numerous calls for unity throughout the New Testament. It's based on Jesus' prayer, at least in part. So think of Romans 16. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Turn away from them. Think of Paul who writes in Galatians 5, speaking of dissensions amongst the believers, he calls them fruits 
not of the spirit, but rotten fruit of the flesh. You know what the fruit of the spirit is. Here's now the fruit of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. What are they? Amongst others, strife, jealousy, dissensions, factions. And how serious is disunity amongst God's people? How serious? Well, in Titus chapter three, Paul issues this command. He says this, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Now, if you know your Bible, you are thinking, but wait, in church discipline, there are how many steps? There are four steps in church discipline. It's what Jesus says. But Paul here says you need to skip one of the steps. When it comes to a factious person, there's not four steps. There's three steps. There's a warning after the first and second warning. After that, if they do not turn, if they do not cease in their factionness, then you remove them from the church. The question is, what step has been skipped? What step? It's the third step. What is that step? Tell it to who? To the church. The last thing you want to do with a factious man is say, go to the church and create more factions. Paul says, reject a factious man. That's how serious disunity is. Again, each of these commands are given because Christ prays for the unity of his people. Verse 11, notice it again. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which, I have, which you have given me. Keep them in your gospel. Protect their faith, but now Jesus adds this, that they may be one even as we are. There's so much that can be said and will be said on this, but for now, just focus on the nature of this unity. Jesus is praying for a unity that he compares to the harmony between himself and his father. That's the unity he's praying for. This is no superficial union. The prayer here echoes Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Because there's a oneness in the Godhead, three persons, yet a oneness in the Godhead, that leads Jesus to pray for a oneness amongst his people. Leon Morris, the commentator, is right. He says, this is more than being a fellow member of an ecclesiastical organization. So it's more than sitting next to the person on Sunday morning here. It is not a shallow unity. And that should immediately convict us, right? Should immediately convict us. The nature of the unity Jesus is praying for here is a spiritual unity. Spiritual unity, first and foremost, it's a spiritual oneness. His prayer here, the Father answered in Acts chapter two when he sent his spirit to unite us together, uh, not only with himself, but one another. This prayer is answered by the Father every time the Father gives his spirit to all who come to him in saving faith. The spirit is given 
The Spirit unites us with himself. The Spirit unites us to each other. We read that throughout the New Testament. So that's the unity Jesus is praying for. It's a spiritual bond. It's repeated in verse 21, notice, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they also may be in us. That's the unity here. It's an invisible unity. It's made possible through the bond of the Spirit. This is a unity in the gospel, a unity in faith in Christ. And again, this prayer is answered by the Father when he sends us his Spirit, the bond of peace. But now notice verse 23. Jesus does not only pray for spiritual unity or invisible unity. He also prays for a growing, visible, perfecting unity and fellowship amongst his people. Verse 23. I in them and you in me. Now watch the next statement. That they may be perfected in unity. Grow in unity. This is lived out unity now. Why? Because this is what the unbelieving world needs to see from us. It needs to see this unity if it is going to believe Christ's gospel. Just continue verse 23. So that, here's the reason, the invisible unity needs to become visible so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, his people, even as you have loved me. We showcase through our unity the love the Father has for his Son. Please see how far-reaching our love for and commitment to one another is. It's far-reaching. Our loving bond established by the Spirit and then perfected through our selfless obedience. That is God's means. That is God's means of showcasing his saving love to the world. Our union to each other because of our union to Christ, it's a union that must show itself visibly in submission to God's will that we pursue together show itself in a commitment to Christ's gospel purposes that we encourage one another to fulfill. This is a unity of loyalty. It shows itself in forgiveness. And according to verse 23, this is the greatest evangelistic tool we have been given. It's the greatest evangelistic tool we have been given in our witness to the world so that they may know It's no wonder God hates dissensions and divisions within his people. It clouds his saving majesty. And I will not give my glory to another. Division steals his glory. Division here in verse 23, it silences his gospel. And thus, Jesus' second request here forces us to ask ourselves necessary questions. 
I'll give you two of them. The first is this. If the Father answered Jesus' prayer for spiritual unity by giving us his spirit, let's make it personal. If the Father answered Jesus' prayer for spiritual unity by giving you his spirit, what the Son asked him to do, and through that he united us to himself and to his Son and to one another forever, if that is true, then why would we ever let superficial, preferential, fleeting differences sever that bond? Why would that happen? Second question. If the visible bond of love between Christ's people is God's means of showcasing his saving majesty, if that is true, then why would we ever veil that glory? Why would we ever silence that gospel by biting and devouring one another? And that's Galatians. Those aren't my words. Why would we ever want to be known as the first church of biting and devouring of Mount Vernon? This is Jesus' second prayer again. We will look at this in more detail, but his second prayer he prays for the unity of his people. He prays for the unity of his people. Leads into prayer number three. Prayer number three, it piggybacks on this well. Christ prays for the gospel witness of his people. Christ prays for the gospel witness of his people. One thing you will see throughout this entire prayer is an emphasis on God's sovereign control over man's salvation. That's one of the themes. Notice verse six. Jesus refers to his apostles as men whom you, Father, gave me out of the world. This is a reference to the Father's sovereign work of regeneration. It's when God reaches into the devil's world the evil world system that hates the gospel and opens up eyes to see the glory of the gospel. And he gives certain sinners to his son. You gave me them out of the world, Jesus says. He changes their hearts. He opens their ears to hear the gospel. He opens their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, the Savior and Lord. He gives them a heart filled with repentance and faith. This is how the Father gives sinners to the Son. This is what Jesus taught back in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. To come to Christ in saving faith, you must first be given to Christ, drawn to Christ by the Father. This is regeneration. Look at verse two. Jesus prayed about this in verse two. To all whom you, Father, have given me, I give eternal life. Be given eternal life from Jesus, you must first be given to Jesus by the Father. You must first be regenerated and converted. So you're going to see that theme throughout. 
the question always comes up, why does the Father do this with some and not others? The question always comes up. Well, look at verse 6. Notice the reason given. Why does the Father give some to the Son? It is because, notice, they were yours. They were yours. It's amazing. Before we came to Christ, before our heart was changed, we actually belonged to the Father. We were his. This is a reference to the Father's sovereign election. His choosing, his selecting of you before the foundation of the world. That's why you're his. That's why he gives you to his son. Again, verse six, they were yours. They belong to you, Father. And because of that, that is why you gave them to me. Drop down to verse nine. I ask, I pray, Jesus says, on behalf of them. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. I'm not praying for everybody here. I'm only praying for those, verse 9, for those whom you, Father, have given me, for they are yours. If the Father gives you the Christ, you come to Christ. Christ only prays for those whom the Father gives. This is how Jesus will end his prayer. Look at verse 24. Father's sovereign election undergirds our glorification. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Only those the Father sovereignly gives to his Son will be with the Son forever. Only those whom the Father chooses from before the foundation of the world will see the glory of Christ. So this is the saving, sovereign decree of God. Not all are chosen unto salvation. Not all are given to Christ by the Father. Which often leads to this conclusion then. So often the conclusion is this. Well, if God sovereignly chooses all who will come to him, if the Father will only give his Son whom he has chosen, then evangelism, then our gospel witness, that's pointless, right? We've all heard it. Sometimes we may even have thought it. It's unnecessary. God's going to do what he's going to do. Well, that is not how Jesus prays. Look at verse 23. Again, verse 23, why must we be living in a unity amongst one another. It is so that the world may know in a saving way that you sent me. It's a responsibility on our end as ambassadors of Christ to bring the gospel to the unbeliever. That's the unity that we must have if we bring it. But now, look at verse 15. There's also a proclamation that must be given. Verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Let me just ask you, and everybody's thinking it, how often have you just asked God to take you out of the world, right? I mean, you see where the world's going. Lord, just save me from this. You know why he hasn't? Because Christ prays for you not to be taken out of the world because you've been left for a certain mission, certain calling, 
I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Instead, keep them in the world, keep them safe in the world. Look at verse 17. Here's their task. I'm praying, Father, that you sanctify them. Now, so often we read the word sanctify and we think of progressive sanctification, right? Growing more and more holy. That's not how Jesus is using the word sanctify here. It's not what he's praying for. The word means to be set apart, set apart for a purpose, set apart for a specific task. Jesus says, I'm praying that you, Father, will set the apostles apart for a specific task, a purpose. Look at verse 19. We know that Jesus is not praying for the apostles to grow in holiness, to grow in repentance. We, we know that because verse 19, Jesus says, for their sakes, for the sake of my people, I what? I sanctify myself. Wait a second. Jesus is not praying to live a life of repentance, is he? No, his prayer is to be set apart for a specific task. That task is to die on the cross. Set me apart to purchase salvation. That's the prayer in verse 19. So in the same way, Jesus now is asking the Father to sanctify his apostles, to set them apart for their purpose, their specific task. And what is that task? Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, set them apart in the realm of truth. And specifically, what is that truth? Your word, your gospel is truth. Consecrate these men, Father, to proclaim your word of salvation. That's the prayer. Set them apart, Father, to proclaim me, the only way to you, the only truth. I am the truth that saves, Jesus has said. That's why Jesus is not praying for us to be taken out of the world. It's the exact opposite. I'm sending them into the world. Again, why? Why does Jesus offer this prayer? Because his truth, his gospel must be proclaimed if someone is going to be saved. Oh, it is so easy to circle the wagons, isn't it? To have our own Christian clubs and never be a part of any unbeliever's life. I'm glad that wasn't the case for you when you weren't saved. Or me. Notice verse 20. Verse 20, salvation from sin is only granted to those who believe in Christ through their what? Through their word. I'm sanctifying them. I'm praying for you, Father, to sanctify them so they proclaim your word. Now in verse 20, people must believe in their word, their witness, the word of truth. Verse 17. It is true that the Father has chosen from before the foundation of the world 
all who will come to Christ in saving faith. That is true. But God has also sovereignly decreed that the only way he brings his elect to his son is through the proclamation of his gospel. And thus he prays for us to be sanctified, set apart for that purpose. We must let Jesus' prayer for gospel proclamation bolster our witness here. Could put the application this way. We've heard Jesus' prayer. Now we need to live Jesus' prayer. Let his prayer spur us in our mission for Christ, knowing that our gospel witness will never fail. It never fails. Even if it's rejected, it never fails. It will always accomplish the Father's sovereign design. It is amazing. He uses us in this task, us, to proclaim the glory of his saving grace. Prayer number three, Christ prays for the gospel witness of his people. Finally, prayer number four. Fourth overall prayer. Prayer number four, Christ prays for the joy of his people. Christ prays for the joy of his people. Look at verse 13. This will extend even into 22 and following. But the overall prayer for joy, verse 13, but now I come to you, And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He prays for our joy. Remember growing up and the question always was asked, how do I know what the will of God is for my life? And quite often the answer would be, find the one thing you don't want to do and that's the thing God wants you to do. Like, that's not helpful. Praying for your joy. This is the joy of assurance, knowing that our salvation can never be lost. This is the joy of protection, knowing that the evil one can do nothing outside of God's sovereign hand. This is the joy of being used by the Father to proclaim his majesty. It's the joy of unity as we share together the fellowship of the Trinity. I and you, you and me, we and them. This is also the joy of hope. The joy of hope, knowing that we will one day be satisfied in the glorious presence of Christ. That is verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory and be satisfied. Jesus is praying that we will be given the joy of our salvation He says, my joy, this is Christ's joy, joy only found in him. He then says, it's his joy made full. This is a fullness of joy that lasts into eternity. That's just an overview, just an overview of the intercession Jesus offers on our behalf. It's spiritual protection, Trinitarian unity, gospel witness and eternal joy. And mark this, mark this, because Jesus always prays according to his Father's will, 
The Father will always answer every prayer Jesus asks for with a resounding yes. Let's put it in the words of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. He has said this, let us consider both the person interceding, namely Christ, and the person with whom Christ intercedes for this favor, which is God. The one the Son, the other the Father. And so the greatness of Christ with God and the graciousness of God to Christ, together with the oneness of wills, and unity of affections in them both so that Christ will be sure to ask nothing which his father will deny and his father will not deny anything which he shall ask. This is our hope, that the perfect son offers perfect intercession for us, his very imperfect people. Praise the Lord for that. Father, we are thank you, thankful that we have a high priest who always lives to represent us before you and to pray on our behalf. We confess that we do not see our own weakness in our life. We confess your wisdom in what Christ prays for. He sees what we do not see. We thank you, Father, that you never deny your son. And we are recipients of these prayers. Lord, we have heard what Jesus has prayed for us. May we now apply those prayers specifically and personally to our lives. Where must we change what must we do not to earn any favor with you, but to mold our wills around the will of our Savior? Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.